the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies, but also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my buds, Mike and Brian. But in this episode, we have a great guest from the podcast Redeemed Otaku. It's Bex. Bex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for being with us. We're kind of hitting a cool stride. We had our first guest a couple of episodes ago with Mike Perna, and now we've got you. And Ooh. it's yeah, so welcome. Thank and you. I Thank might add much. that Bex is our first invited guest since oh. we extended this invitation <laughs> months ago. So it's wow. still another first. Yeah, Perna just Let showed me, up. Uh, we don't know how he got yeah, on. Yeah, he crashed, and we're still figuring out how that happened. <laughs> Let me pin that badge to my lapel here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your podcast. Okay. Well, my name is Bex, and I like cats. I like every kind of cat. Uh, <laughs> but, no, that is true. I do like cats, um, but that's not all that's about me. Um, I am a Christian, first and foremost, and I have been a Christian. Well, I've been, I was raised in the church all my life, uh, but I was converted, saved, whatever terminology you want to use, back when I was 18. Um, but I've had a love for anime since I was 14, around that time. Um, and within the past few years, I have uh, been able to kind of mesh those two things together. So I do run a podcast called Redeemed Otaku, and we actually um, we have a little fun with it, try to provide some good, clean entertainment. But we also try to, when we review anime, is actually take a look at the underlying philosophies and the worldview that's prevented, that, I'm sorry, that's presented in the anime, and kind of take a look at what the Bible has to say about those things and kind of bring in the gospel to that. Um, so it's a lot of fun. We've had a lot of great people on, and we do a little bit on the YouTube channel too, something a little bit different. Again, just trying to provide some good, clean entertainment. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. So how might some of our listeners find your podcast? Okay, so we um, are on iTunes, but if you don't have iTunes, um, as far as I know, any podcatcher that you use will probably pick us up. Um, but if that's not the case, then you can go to redeemedotaku.com. The webpage is a little iffy. I need, it needs some work, but you'll find our episodes there. But we're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search Redeemed Otaku. You're going to find us. And again, also on YouTube. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I say, gentlemen, that we head into Geek Out now. And uh, Bex, as our guest, we're going to throw you under the bus and ask you, <laughs> what are you geeking out to right now? All right. So um, back in August, they launched World of Warcraft Classic. You ever heard of it? You ever heard of World of Warcraft? I saw a tweet about it sometime. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is that what WOW stands for all this time? Yes. Man, yes. it was way off. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we, me and my husband, we played World of Warcraft starting back uh, during Wrath of the Lich King. And we did drop it uh, right around the end of Warlords of Draenor. 
Um, so for the past few years, we haven't been playing. And then when they launched Classic, it was just like, okay, we got to get back into it. Just casual play, just to have fun, just for nostalgia's sake. Um, and we've been greatly enjoying that, dying a lot, <laughs> remembering how hard it was, running out of bag space, not having any gold, you know, good times. <laughs> good times. <laughs> <laughs> Is this as miserable as I remember it? It is. I love it. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about it, I guess, for me. Well, as someone whose whole podcast is anime-based, may I ask you, what uh, yeah. what are your favorite animes right now? Oh, right now? Okay. Well, that's a you threw out a caveat there. Um, let's see. Lately... Um, Within the past year, I'd have to say uh, Land of the Lustrous was one that really stood out to me. Um, it came out a couple years ago, and we watched it just recently within the last year and absolutely loved it. Um, all CGI, but done right. Just beautiful. Just beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, the, the story was intriguing, and there's mystery involved and great characterization, um, and we want more of it. We want more of it. So Land of the Lustrous was one. And we actually just started watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is hugely popular. And we're going to be reviewing the first part of it very soon. That episode should be coming very soon. Um, probably when you drop this episode, I'll already have had it out. Uh, but Jojo, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is a lot of fun, and we're kind of enjoying that one, too, as weird and quirky as it is and stylized. I've heard it's good. It's pretty great. So, yeah. So those are the two that kind of come to mind right here, right now. <laughs> cool. Okay, so who's next? I'll pick it up, I guess. Uh, I was in a conversation recently in another community. Conversation got kicked off by my description of the character I'm running in a D&D &D campaign who is... Uh, lawful neutral and i mentioned that i'm having a difficult time getting my my head around the behavior of this character because i always play good is easy for me i can do lawful good mm -hmm. i can do chaotic good i can do whatever good you want but having an ethical framework that's not predicated on that goodness it's like okay so what does that what does that mean why does he do the things he does why is he a hero um, and this led into a conversation about the nature of good and evil as alignments in D D. And there was one person in the conversation who was insisting that people who are evil are doing evil things because they're evil. Hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. I was like, well, now Caiaphas and Ananias didn't kill Jesus because their goal was murder. And that's what he was saying. He's like, right. so, so what, was their, what, was, what was their plan? What was it they were open to accomplish? He says, murder. Uh... I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I have another thought. Yeah, and so I had this this conversation in my brain, and uh, yesterday I I had a party to go to, and it was like two hours early. It's like okay, I need to kill a couple of hours here, so I dropped into the theater just as you know to spend that time. And the only thing that was playing that I wanted to see, well, I didn't even really want to see it, but uh, that fit my time frame was Joker. Hmm. And so I'd had 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 this conversation about evil for its own sake. And then I go and I sit down and I watch this movie. And first of all, it's made me deeply uncomfortable. I mean, it is not a movie to enjoy. And anybody who's coming out of this thinking that just because Joker is the protagonist, it means he's a hero of some kind is just, there's something wrong with them because 
Hmm. He definitely is not. It's, it's not glorifying him in any way. But ultimately, he is a character who is just about chaos and just about doing evil for its own sake. Um, and so I just come off of this conversation, and then all of a sudden I'm presented with this movie, and it's like, well, you know, maybe I didn't have the whole story. And I'm still working through that, kind of struggling with that notion, but uh, I thought it was interesting to be suddenly presented with that when I was, that was what I was arguing against. Interesting. So was it just that I haven't seen the film either? I know that we have a discussion of the film coming up at the school that I work at, but is it just that he was completely chaotic and sociopathic? Or was it just his slip from sanity to something else that was so disturbing? What What is it that made this made this the uncomfortable journey that it was? That's a, an excellent question. It was almost every scene you're seeing him... You know, it, it's it's starting with a, a look at, okay, this is mental illness. I mean, nobody's going to say that the Joker is not crazy. Mental illness is central to his character. Right. Um, and so it's presenting this to you, and it's showing you, this is what mental illness looks like. And this is how people respond to someone who is mentally ill. Long before he's put on the makeup and he's become Joker, he is interacting or trying to interact with people and failing at it, and they're failing to interact with him in a positive manner. And you see his response to this, and at every step you're like, oh, this is just really making me uncomfortable. I don't like seeing this. It makes me feel bad about myself because I know I would be mm. just like that person on the bus who was not responding mm. properly to this guy. And then he starts making his bad decisions, and you're like, you can see where it's going to go, and you say, oh, no, please don't do that. Please, Oh, Lord, he just did that. And it's it's giving you this insight into his mind, and speaking strictly for myself, I'm trying to understand him, and there is nothing there to grab onto. I'm I'm in his head, but it is a maze. It's it's mirrors. It's smoke. It's not comprehensible, and yet the movie does it works on a level as like everything makes sense, but you can't can't understand him which I mm -hmm. thought was really, really interesting. And it's not a movie I will ever watch again because I, I almost got up and left several times, not because the movie was bad, but just because it was making me squirm so much. Wow. Hmm. Okay, so... so... My, my, I, actually, <laughs> I actually have a question about that. Because I've not watched the movie. I have really no interest in it whatsoever. You mentioned that it's not really for entertainment's sake, because somebody that's coming out of there being entertained by it probably has some issues. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what would the purpose of the movie be then, in your opinion? If it is nothing else, it's a look at how do you treat somebody that you don't understand? If somebody mm -hmm. is on the bus and they're laughing uncontrollably, not because they're, they see humor in something, but just because they have some kind of a condition. Mm-hmm how do you respond to that? And do you think that you're responding in a way that is compassionate? And there is mm. no compassion in that movie, none. And that's condemning because I think that it's a true portrait of how we look at people with mental illness. Mm. One of the most well-known Joker stories in the Batman verse was the one that's summed up as the killing joke. I'm not even that much into uh, Batman and Joker comics, and even I know about it, but it was done by Alan Moore, and I remember him saying that he either wrote this about the Joker or he had the Joker say this. All it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive to lunacy. And 
like Bex, I'm slightly curious about the movie, but I have no desire to see it in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. The gentleman who plays the Joker, does he start out as someone who, while you're never going to call him a good guy, he's not inherently bad, and then it's just a continual bad day over the stretch of the entire film that drives him to this? I think that's an accurate assessment, yeah. Uh, he was played by Joaquin Phoenix, who was completely unrecognizable in the role. I mean, if it hadn't been for the fact that his name was on the screen, I would not have been able to identify him. Um, hmm. And it's hard to say because you, even after you've seen the whole movie, you still don't know entirely what was real and what's in his head. They were a little heavy-handed at one point saying, this was a hallucination. It's like, okay, yeah, we, we got that from like halfway through the movie. But there's a number of other places where I really think that things that we were shown on screen did not actually happen. So it's it's really hard to evaluate how far down the rabbit hole he already was at the very beginning of the film. But I think, yeah, it's it was absolutely a series of events that just pushed him right over the edge, and he didn't even try to stop it. Hmm. Well, let's get through that dark valley and move on to something different. <laughs> yes. Does anybody have something happy to say? I will uh, uh. To maybe shine a little light at the uh, end of the tunnel. I'll go next. First off, my wife and I actually got a date night not too long ago. And Woo-hoo. for the first time in months, there was a movie out that we actually were looking forward to seeing. And that was Ford versus Ferrari. It's the tale of American car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles as they joined forces along with Ford to build and race a car that would challenge car designer Titan Ferrari and beat them at the 24-hour Le Mans race in 1966. For being a period piece, like racing movie, it's phenomenal. The top two characters, Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, are played by Matt Damon and Christian Bale, and they were fantastic. Their whole chemistry was built around two guys. Their entire lives have been around cars, uh, driving them, working on them, fixing them, even designing them. And these are two guys who have known each other for years and years. And sometimes when they work together on a project, they're firing ideas off one another and they're working really well. Another time they might be getting in a fist fight on the front lawn of, of their house. And they play that dynamic and that relationship so well. It's completely believable. These are two guys who have such a long and, and complicated history. You bring in the cars. You bring in the tension of the racing, the drive to win. Let me ask you all this. Uh, Mike and Brian, you remember Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise? <laughs> I never actually watched yeah. it. Okay. Me neither. Tom Cruise is a NASCAR driver. And it was kind of based on a true story. And it became like the race car movie for a generation. Mm-hmm. This is better. See, I didn't see it because I heard that it just covered the same ground so many times in the snow. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it just went around and around in it, circles, never got anywhere. Yes, it was, it was turning left, the movie. <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari, it's better. It is so much better. After watching it, I, I turned to my wife and both of us were like, we need to go to Texas Motor Speedway and see if we can't drop some cash so they'll let us drive a car at 120 miles per hour. Because that's the mood it will put you in. Obviously, it's based on a true story. If you have a chance to get to the theater, go see it. Nice. The, or if you want to watch an anime, you can watch Initial D. Oh, gosh. I tried to watch that lately. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that one guy's lips just freaked me out so much. 
<laughs> I have to watch it now just so I can see this dude's lips and see what's, oh, what's causing so Brian such discomfort. <laughs> and once I watch it, I'm going to send him a postcard with just this dude's lips. There you go. <laughs> Well, for the next part of my geek out, I actually got to partake in a one-night D&D game. Nice. No way. Yeah. A buddy of mine named Andrew, who who was in the SCA with me, he's a fellow rapier fighter. Kudos to him. He hasn't had a lot of time until recently because he just graduated with his doctorate in literal rocket science. So, wow. Yeah. So now that he's all graduated and has free time, he decided to jump back into geeky things with a passion. He's been going to a D&D night at a local comic book shop. And uh, when he heard that myself and some others haven't done it in a long while, he did a one-night game for myself and a couple of other fellow SCA people, and we did it over Discord. So he nice. uh, he created a Discord server, got us all in on it, and we did a voice chat over it. Uh, we all created characters using dndbeyond.com. Apparently he paid for a subscription service so that we could all create characters through their character engine. He would say the campaign on here. Having never used it before, it was... Almost frighteningly easy to create a character. Hmm. So that doesn't sound like D and D. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound like D and D at all. You know, but (laughs) like, yeah, I like what that backs. You don't have to have a degree in rocket science for. Oh wait, hold on, maybe it does help. But it does help. (laughs) Does help. He's like, no problem, guys. It's rocket science. Well, this isn't rocket science. It's brain surgery. Oh well, then we're in trouble. Well, uh, what am I going to do with rocket fuel? (laughs) Rocket science is traveler, and brain surgery would be Call of Cthulhu. Good comparison. (laughs) Oh, man. So my husband's really into Cthulhu Mythos and all that. And he's really wanting to get into like board games and kind of that game and build his gaming library. And so he bought the game. Oh, what is it? I'm trying to see it from here. Arkham Horror. Arkham Horror. Oh, man, I have that game. So he brought it over when my nephew and niece and everybody was kind of visiting and cracked it open thinking that we could just, you know, read the directions and start playing. <laughs> and bang you know, it out in six hours. <laughs> that that takes a degree in rocket science, I tell you what. <laughs> once you get it down, you can play a game in about three, three and a half hours. And okay. then once you get it down. And then the nightmares begin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you're doing it right. Okay. That's good. Back to my uh, quick one-night D&D. For the first time ever, I made a dwarf character named Dellum Blackhammer. That's the best dwarf name I could come up with on the fly. (laughs) Instead of being a guy who usually uses an axe or a hammer, I was a crossbowman. The game was set in a masquerade ball of a noble. And we get there, lots of people in masks. We're given masks as well, and we're mingling and... Suddenly, people start to you know act like they're in pain or weird, and all of the masks were of animals. And as everyone starts acting weird, we realize the masks had become affixed to everyone's face, and at different speeds, everyone's starting to portray aspects of the animals of their mask. Mm. So uh, we find out that our host, who we thought was a normal elf, half-elf dude, is not some type of demon vampire dude um so we had to fight him and but it was a lot of fun a great one night adventure and it was my first time using D beyond and doing it over discord it went really well uh was fairly streamlined i used like one of D's dice generating websites for all my roles uh mm-hmm. the website did not hate me so i uh, didn't have to <laughs> chuck my laptop through a window so you didn't die 
Thankfully, I didn't die. Had a couple of really good <laughs> rolls. Had a couple of, of bad ones, but it was no like three, three or four ones in a row. So, right. like the dice like to do to me sometimes. <laughs> all in all, great night, and I hope he'll do another one shot for us again soon. After not having gamed in literally years, it was fun to be able to jump back into it, even for just an evening. And... I still can't get over the fact that you would have somebody named Blackhammer whose weapon is the crossbow. I mean, does does he also say, and meet my dog, his name is Cat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I like that I'm the black sheep of the Blackhammer family. D- Daddy doesn't talk about mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Well, because black crossbow just doesn't roll off the tongue as easy. No, yeah, <laughs> like that, yeah. Or a black bolt would have been nice. Oh, there Ooh. you go. Dang, that's better. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, changing character sheet. No, it's too, too late now. Too late now. Got to live with it. Uh, all right, Mike, what about you, sir? Uh, I want to pick up a little bit on the racing theme that you touched on earlier, except it's Mario Kart. Uh, because Yay! the family is... I know, right? Uh, we've been playing uh, Mario Kart 8 on the Switch. And, man, we hit a wall once we hit 150 cc's. And so we started changing up the way that we played, and we're on 200 cc's now. We finished a 150 cup, we finished the mirrors, uh, now we're on 200. And the way that we've been playing is a lot more cooperative as, as a four-player group, but still competitive against the computers, because everybody will race as hard as we can the first race. And whichever one of us places, like if one of us is one, two, or three, we say, okay, we are supporting that person and so Hmm. if that person is in first and we get a blue shell somebody will call out i got a blue shell and then it'll be hold it and then we'll hold and if they lose first they'll say throw the blue and then we'll say you know we'll call it out throwing and then we'll hit the computer that's ahead and if one of us gets ahead of the person that's ahead in points we will wait till the computer bypasses them and throw our red shells and green shells backwards and then foul ourselves so that the person with the most points can pull ahead. And so there's a lot of communicating and a lot of strategizing between us in terms of, okay, who's the computer leader and how can we foul the, the computer-controlled character that has the most points while profiting the player-controlled character who has the most points. So it's, nice. it's been... Yeah, it's been a wild exercise, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds really much fun. fun. A deeper way of playing the game. It's interesting. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Nintendo never intended for this to happen, and I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Nintendo doesn't plan for a lot of things that people do, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my Wii is so hacked. Okay, yeah, moving on. <laughs> Yeah, like I actually installed third-party software on my Wii, like a third-party Zelda game, and then I found out why Nintendo has that seal of approval, because it was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Mario Kart was the only game that almost inspired my wife and I to buy a Wii. It was one of the last times that we were in Best Buy, and they had a Wii set up, and they had the controllers in uh, in the steering wheels, and... I think we were playing Mario Kart for probably like over 30 minutes and having a ball. And like there's some eight-year-old kid who was standing behind us waiting for his turn, and we completely ignored him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, we should just buy one and take it home. Mm, now nah, we'll just play right here. 
<laughs> oh, I'll tell you, though, the, the steering wheel mechanic is something that they carried over into the Switch, but they also made it optional. So you can use your joystick or you can use it your controller like a, a joystick. And I think that that option was such a solid move. Yeah. Okay. Well, if that about wraps up everybody's geek out, uh, then... Maybe we should talk about something that's that's going to be happening shortly after this episode is released. Bum, and bum, uh, that, I know, like it's like it's really really great, and it's also really really not. Um, I am a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, and and I mean, I know that Brian and James are with me on that. But Bex, how, how do you do? You consider yourself a Star Wars fan? I do consider myself a Star Wars fan, but not a rabid fan. Um, yeah. I'm more of the I'm more of the casual fan. So like we you know have the movies or we we have the original trilogy. We have a Monopoly Star Wars original trilogy edition. We've seen the first three, um, but we haven't read any of the like comics or novels or anything like that. So we're we're more of the casual fan. If, okay. if I so may it, make a suggestion it, about the comics and the novels, uh, mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. Um, they will the pull question. you in. They will pull you in, yeah. and forever yeah. will they dominate your destiny. All righty, so, thank you, James. If they if they make an anime of the Thrawn trilogy, would you recommend it to Bex? I would wear the T-shirt. Oh, all right. So your T-shirt would say, um, "I recommend the Thrawn anime to Bex." Okay. All right. Well, I'd, ha- I'd have Brian make a funny logo. Which would be understood okay. by many, but still look cool. And I'll leave it to all him. Right, I'll right. leave it to him what that looks like. Okay. <laughs> the reason why this comes up is because I'm really excited for episode nine, and also on another hand, uh, really, really not. Um, it's because I plan on going to the film, seeing it, because I I enjoy science fiction media. I am fully prepared for how the new trilogy is different from the original trilogy being a product of its time and a product of our time. But something really, really, really disappointing happened the last movie that came out. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about the content of the film. What I really want to talk about is the divisive nature that just something in the fan base erupted again that was really really toxic uh and i i moderate on a star wars rpg forum and the moderating was just so hard after that because people were so passionately divisive about Mm -hmm. this film and i'm like wow you guys realize that this is that this is just seven bucks maybe 11 bucks worth of entertainment right like this is this is not your religion. This is not your. <laughs> this is not your cultural heritage. This is something you enjoyed as children, and enjoy as adults. And we don't have to do this to each. If somebody likes something that you don't like, or doesn't like something you do, it does not have to come to this. Right? Uh, am I right? <laughs> yes, you are right. <laughs> so. So speaking of a casual fan, all right. Um, I kind of observed a lot of that toxic fandom from, you know, the outskirts because, you know, we, we enjoyed the new movies. We were the ones who really enjoyed it. And one of the things that we've been making a practice of for the last two and for this new one coming is we've only watched the trailer once. And I apologize. There's a cat meowing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
We only watched the trailer one time, and we've stayed out of, like, any discussions, any blog posts, um, anything. We've just, like, completely stayed out of it. If there's something coming up on our Facebook feed, we just scroll past it. So we can come into the movie just fresh without any sort of preconceived ideas, and let's just enjoy the movie for how they want us to enjoy it. Um, And that's kind of worked really well for us. See, and I think that sounds like a great option for the casual fan, um, not a bad approach for, for other fans as well. And I'm not so much saying we have to embrace the new film with an air of positivity. Mm-hmm. By all means, if you like film criticism, go in and critique the film. If you don't like it, then I support you in not liking it. If you, mm-hmm. if you love the film and I don't like it, I'm not going to get down on you for enjoying something more than I did. There is no crime in humanity of somebody enjoying something more than you did. Yeah. <laughs> but let's take a look at what happened to Kelly Marie Tran. She was the actress who played Rose. Uh, she quit Twitter because the fans were so hostile towards her over the way the writers wrote her character and the way that she direct, was directed in how she acted. Like, newsflash, this person is not Rose. She did not make up those lines. She did not make up the plot. There is absolutely no excuse for harassing another human being for not sufficiently entertaining you. <laughs> Twitter is cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <It's terrible. laughs> um, how did we meet, Bex? What's that? Oh, Twitter. Yeah, I was like, how yeah. did we meet? I think it was Twitter. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, that is, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I take that back. No, <laughs> and I, I also want to highlight, I mean, people complained about episode one that it ruined their childhood while literally ruining Jake Lloyd's childhood. Yeah. Uh, and um, causing oh. Ahmed Best, the gentleman who played Jar Jar Binks, to seek counseling and therapy. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know um, about that. That's awful. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And my point is not that you... I have criticisms with all of these characters, but the difference is, is that whatever happens with this new movie, whether you love it or hate it, just remember who you are. And this is, this is a a Christian podcast. I'm assuming at least some of our listeners are Christians. If we're people of God, we should not be looking for things to divide us. And we Mm -hmm. shouldn't be known for promoting bickering and hostility. So especially over fictitious characters and stories you know like this stuff isn't real guys (laughs) you take that back (laughs) (laughs) i'll be honest i'm I'm with brian on this there would have been a time in my very young childhood if you had told me that star wars wasn't real we'd be about to throw down (laughs) i yeah i think i have in my tagline on the forum in which i moderate Somebody was talking about how some level of, of ideas is just absurd. No, that the idea of somebody tearing down a government and replacing it with the rebellion's government and people tearing down the statues overnight is just absurd. And I'm like, you know, we're talking about a series of movie where a little rubber puppet moves a spaceship with his mind. I think that the bar <laughs> for absurdity is already set pretty low. Yeah. Um, and all I'm asking is for for you to partake of the film, 
in whatever frame of mind that you, you would like to, and then be a decent human being to other people afterward. Mm-hmm. And remember mm-hmm. the person behind that screen name on Twitter or Facebook or wherever is a human being that deserves your respect and empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no matter how passionately you feel about a fandom, whether it's one that you've started watching or reading recently or one that you've grown up with since your childhood, however emotional it or other people make you feel, don't forget who you are and don't forget the person who you promised to live for and serve. Hmm. Don't forget that in all aspects of life, including your fandoms, you need to make Christ part of the equation. Okay, well so you mean said. I need to buy I need to buy a fifth ticket to Rise of the Skywalkers so I I can bring Jesus to the So no, Jesus no, no, can no, no, come no, no, with no. you? Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't uh, like saving a seat for Elijah. Okay. Okay. The, <laughs> the only other thing I would say, one more point I want to make on this subject is this. When fandom can turn toxic, when fandom can experience bullying from all different sides, remember this, it is okay for other people to like something that you don't. And also, it's okay for you to like something that other people don't. There's so many fandoms, so many great books, animes, movies. Really, there's room for everybody. And I wish that is something that more people remembered. Well, and since we're talking about fandoms, you know, I got to say, I have slick transition here. uh, (laughs) I've never experienced much, if any, negativity around Hayao Miyazaki films. And partly I think it's just because of how much positivity he infuses, even into his, his darkest films because I said Mm -hmm. Princess Mononoke without saying it. And (laughs) one of the things that we would like to do this evening, and we have invited our anime specialist back in to discuss this. I know, right? That just happened. (laughs) Is is to discuss the works of Hayao Miyazaki. And we could probably do an entire year of podcasting on him. But we're just going to take a quick look at some of his themes and some of his favorite works of ours. So... In terms of favorite films, let's just pick one or two and give us a brief description. And Bex, why don't you lead us off with, with what's your favorite one or two Miyazaki films and why? Okay. Well, I love, my two favorite are Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. I'm actually sporting um, a Spirited Away sweatshirt with Haku on the front. I've got a phone cover with Haku and Sen. Um, so that's definitely my top one. Um, But both I like because they hit a lot of things that I love about stories. Um, You have the, well, first of all, you have the beautiful animation, the the enchanting music. I love dragons and I love talking animals and I love fantastical places and creatures. And I love the story of going to a new world, trying to get back. And all these wonderful elements that you see in both Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. So they both just just hit all the right spots for me. So I just love both of them. How about you, Mike? Um, How about that? You like that transition? Ooh, fluid riposte. Okay. Uh, I think that a lot of people are going to talk about Spirited Away. So I'm going to go for like number two and three on my list. And in, yeah, not, not in either of them in any particular order, but... I am absolutely in love with Kiki's Delivery Service. 
Fantastic uh, the, one, yes. I mean, that's the thing is that this is such a wonderfully subtle character that I had fallen in love with this ever since my first viewing. And the fact that I watched this on a very different level than my daughter's, and then they revisited the film a little bit later, and one of them even said, Dad, this is not the same movie. And I'm like, yeah, I know, right? Because the, the actions and reactions of Kiki are very subtle. You can see as an adult, if you watch her reactions to other people in the film, that they're in that they are informed by other interactions so her self-consciousness her preoccupation with feeling like an outsider and being different from the other girls her age is really nuanced but so emotionally present and just her struggle with her powers and also just the the earnest heartfelt desire to try again was motivated by her friendship or something else, her uh, hostile affections <laughs> with with Tombo, <laughs> and I'm not gonna say that I tear up at the end of that movie every darn time. But my <laughs> daughter's like, Dad, what what are you doing? And I'm like, Nothing. It's like, Are you crying? Like, No, I've got something in my eyes. They're called tears. <laughs> Both of them. Yep, this is what we're doing. No. Um, it's weird, Dad. You get something in your eye at the same point in this movie every time. Uh-huh. Every time we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> no, but seriously, I think that it is just such just such a wonderful, real emotional presence in this film. And I, and I adore that, especially with the subtlety of the film. And also, Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite Miyazaki films because it, it also has, a, again, a depth and a nuance to it. Uh, when you have just the struggle of the peacemaker, somebody who is really trying to make peace with himself and his curse, which he's trying to confront his curse head on with eyes unclouded. And he's trying to, to meet what will destroy him. And he's kind of embodied the outward chaos that is happening in all these various factions, which have their own goals in mind. And he's trying almost futilely to bring peace to all these warring people that are that are making the curse happen in an indirect way and living out what's destroying him. And just to have this struggle of the peacemaker is is an incredible journey. Excellent. Everything the- he just said about Princess Mononoke, I agree with. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm also going to make a note on the animation of Princess Mononoke because, oh, man. I mean, they're all beautiful all of these movies we've talked about more are visually stunning but i grew up watching cartoons all of us grew up watching cartoons Mm -hmm. and i can remember Mm -hmm. the first anime style of cartoon that i watched as a kid was the original voltron defenders of the universe nice i was raised on that i was raised on looney tunes uh, gi joe transformers and so many more and seeing disney movies which are visually stunning as well but I can remember watching Princess Mononoke in, like, uh, when did it come out? 1997? So, 97, 98? Mm-hmm. This movie showed me an extent of animated complexity, fluidity, and beauty that I never knew was possible. It astounded me just at the level of detail and motion that could be achieved in an animated movie. It left me gobsmacked. And Brian can attest, for those of us in our group, there was a place we hung out 
And if there was a long period of time that we couldn't figure out what we wanted to do, we'd watch Princess Mononoke. And there was like mm-hmm. a rotating library of movies. It was either Princess Mononoke, The Princess Bride, or Shrek. <laughs> but every, or Holy Grail. Yes, or Monty Python, The Holy Grail. <laughs> and every single time I'd watch Princess Mononoke, it never got old. Have you watched the Blu-ray? I have not. Watch it. It'll be like watching it brand new all over again. I promise you. It is amazing. Cool. I'm definitely going to be looking for that then. All right. So, James, what are your favorite Miyazaki films? Or did we just we just tuck all <laughs> your number one? Well, my number one did get taken, but that's okay because one that I want to talk about is one of my favorites. I'm going to say one of my top two favorites, but I feel like doesn't get a lot of attention almost to the point of, I think, being underrated, and that is Porco Rosso. Oh, yes. I love it. For some reason, I thought it was one of his later movies until I found out it was actually made in 1992. Uh, It didn't get released in the U.S. until a few years later, but set in 1930s Italy, a veteran World War I pilot who was cursed with the, the face of a pig. And once again, it's a visually beautiful movie, but I love the planes and how they are drawn to fly and all of these incredible seaplanes. And it's the story of a guy who he's got a lot of his own inner demons and his own inner challenges. Uh, He's a former ace and now he makes a living flying contract jobs. A lot of the time he's up against air pirates. And first off, the fact that there's air pirates in this movie just (laughs) sets it above so many others. The story of the movie and also its presentation, its plot, and its pacing, it really made me think that this is a movie that's very reminiscent of Hollywood's golden age. Um, The characters, they're complex, they're wonderful, their interrelationships are easy to follow. I mean, obviously it's a cartoon more aimed toward kids, but it feels so much more like an adult movie with its complex relationships and story. And, of course, the highest quality of animation Once again, one that I could watch over and over and over. And if people who are more familiar with Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, check out Porco Rosso. You are not going Mm -hmm. to regret it. So it's interesting that you said that it's, you know, more of an adult movie. I watched the documentary The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which is about Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. And he commented that... Up until that time, up until Porco Rosso, he'd been making movies for kids. And he commented that he called Porco Rosso foolish because it wasn't for kids. And I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So that just brought that to mind when you said that it's more of like that adult movie. And it's interesting because he goes on to make Princess Mononoke, which is super Definitely not for children. (laughs) Seriously. When we did our uh, review last month for Spirited Away, I had asked Mike when he showed it to his children, because my daughter is seven, and we're definitely not going to be showing her that movie. And when looking at Miyazaki's library, I'm like, okay, we're going to wait on Spirited Away. Mm -hmm. Definitely going to be waiting on Princess Mononoke for a very Mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. But she did love My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, that's wonderful. I just rewatched that just recently, and I almost put that in my favorites, because it's so great it's so great but go ahead continue <laughs> well one that i i wish was one of my favorites but it's one that i either haven't seen it or i might have seen some of it years and years ago on television but has anyone seen nausicaa valley of the wind yes, yes. that yes. is my eldest's 
like her current go-to Miyazaki film. Okay. Mm. I have not seen it, but after reading about it, I want to see it. What are you doing with the rest of this evening? Like, once you're done, just go home. Yeah. <laughs> buy this on eBay and watch it. It's good. We're going to be talking about it tonight. So, you know, buckle up. Yeah. 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 So how about you, Brian? Um, have you seen any Miyazaki films? Uh, I have jammed a few of them in the last couple of weeks. I had seen Princess Mononoke years ago. Um, about a, two years ago, I got to see uh, My Neighbor Totoro in the theater, actually. Um, oh, neat. At a Studio Ghibli film festival here in, in Los Angeles. That was, that was a lot nice. of fun. Um, and I have to say, that's a, a fantastic film. And given that Spirited Away is already on everybody else's list, I'll go ahead and put that one on mine. Um, and uh, also Howl's Moving Castle I saw just oh, two days ago nice. um, and that one keeps I, as I think about it it keeps moving up and down against Spirited Away it's like sometimes I, I'm thinking about it it's like oh you know what that was so much better than what Spirited Away was doing and then I lean back the other direction so I haven't gotten quite sorted out what my favorites are but I watched uh, that one I watched Kiki's Delivery Service which you're right that's a beautiful wonderful uh, charming film but i think uh yeah totoro and howl's moving castle are on my list right now Hmm. good picks yeah it's one of those things like you really don't have a bad pick in the works of hayao miyazaki like even Mm -hmm. his like my least favorite of his films is a better film than a lot of other writer directors so Mm -hmm. i have every single one of his movies now, I did watch uh, The Castle of Cagliostro, and that one's not stellar. He, he didn't write not it. Not bad, though, but... So... Right, yeah. yeah. I still own it, but... Uh, speaking of ones that are lower on the end but aren't well-known, did Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli do an adaptation of Tales of Earthsea? Earthsea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that Studio Ghibli, Ghibli did that. Yeah. 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 That, that was Studio was Ghibli. His... That was... That was, uh, yes, Studio Ghibli, and that was his son, Goro Miyazaki. I have not watched it. I did. What did you think? Moving on. Um, <laughs> toxic fandom. Oh. No, no, no. That's all uh, you have. You don't have to say anything else. Fair enough. Let's move on. No, I mean, no, I can say that it was, I think it was a fine film. I think that it was, it was very apparent that it is a director's first work. So, mm. I think mm-hmm. that there is that there is a lot of talent and a lot of good there that is sure to be refined as the career progresses. Excellent. I'll probably end up watching it just because I'm a completist. <laughs> I was like, well, I haven't seen that one, so I got to watch that. Well, I'll probably end up buying it, too. If you're a completionist, then, you know, then you definitely want to watch Grave of the Fireflies. And schedule uh, yeah. therapy for immediately after. <laughs> <But>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I say, that was a wonderful film. Let us never speak of it again. <laughs> <laughs> I just recently so, watched one called uh, From Up on Poppy Hill. And yeah. I think Miyazaki, um, he did, I think he like co-directed it or something. So he wasn't like directly involved, but um, you know had a lot of influence, and that was pretty good. I actually enjoyed it. It had a little bit of a weird twist, but then it twisted back, you know. So it kind of made you feel uncomfortable for a little bit, but then it corrected itself, and you're like, oh, okay, happy ending, yay! <laughs> so. Yeah, that was a charming film. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, I enjoyed that. All right. Um, why don't we open up and talk about some themes that we see in Miyazaki's films? And I think that a couple of of Studio Ghibli films are going to kind of slip on in there just because there is some some overlap. But what what do we think about uh, the representation of environment or nature in Hayao Miyazaki? Uh, it's pretty much everywhere. Right. <laughs> I mean, he, You're not going to get away from it. <laughs> right. I mean, he seems to be very profoundly aware of how Japan has transitioned and modernized and industrialized. And, I mean, it seems to me, from looking at the scope of his films, seems to feel a sense of loss for the natural elements that were Japan while still participating in some of the the benefits that that the technological revolutions that have happened there uh, have mm-hmm. affected his country. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we see this popping up over and over again in, in his films. Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind has some wonderful representations of this in the way that Nausicaa, the, the titular character, is, is <laughs> living with some level of comfort with the toxic jungle. Like there is this jungle that is exuding toxicity that is, they believe is poisoning the world only to find out, spoiler alert for a film that came out a couple of decades ago, <laughs> that the forest, it, that it's the earth that humans have corrupted. The earth has been made toxic and the jungle is purifying it. That it is, mm-hmm. it is the mechanism for us to be able to re-inhabit the rest of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that same theme also carries forward into Princess Mononoke, mankind poisoning the environment that they are in and nature fighting against it and mm-hmm. someone having to set it right. And some of Miyazaki's themes, I must admit, they can be presented beautifully before you as like a, a, a book gently unfolding in the wind. Others are a wooden steel mallet that is being thrust right at your face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that comes from his, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure his, his religion of Shintoism. I'm sure a lot of that kind of stems from that. Yeah, I don't know that he is a, is he a practicing, does he practice a Shinto or is this just his, I guess, his spiritual language, so to speak? That I don't know, but Shintoism is so wrapped up within the culture, the whole Japanese culture, whether he would consider, I don't know if he's considered practicing or not, but it's going to be prevalent in his thought processes and his storytelling. I mean, it's just kind of part of who they are, you know, part of the culture in general. Part of the fabric of the the fabric yeah. of the mentality yeah. and storytelling. Exactly. Yeah, we exactly. we talk a lot about philosophical foundations affecting our works on this podcast. So that's mm-hmm. that's nothing new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. One thing I think is interesting about Miyazaki's treatment of the environmentalism is that he seems to have a somewhat of an optimistic viewpoint on it. That just because we have polluted, just because we've corrupted nature, that doesn't that's not the end of the story. It's still possible to turn it around. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really nice, refreshing view on it, that it's not all just doom and gloom, that he always seems to see that there's a way forward. Yeah. He presents it as that it's not going to be easy. It's going to take courage. There's going to be difficulties, and sometimes there's even going to be some self-sacrifice. But he presents it in a manner that there are ways 
to reverse the damage that has been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that was especially represented in, in Spirited Away in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw her her approach of this stink spirit, which wasn't a stink spirit at all. It turned out to be a river spirit that had been so horribly polluted. And mm-hmm. that was rough in her treating the, the stink spirit. And it was influenced in some ways by Hayao Miyazaki doing a river cleanup in his own experience, pulled a bicycle out of a river and among the things that that they were cleaning up Mm -hmm. and also trying to guide Haku back to his real name. And we might not be able to guide him back to guide him back to his original location. There is a restorative spirit in that film. And even with the encounter of no face, um, you know, when he gets bloated from his greed, Mm. and she reverses it by, feeding him that little whatever it was that she got from the river spirit. Um, and he yeah. starts, yeah, he starts vomiting everything <laughs> out. And it's, it's such a gross and fascinating. And you're just glued to the, because to, we, we rewatched Spirited Away. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this is such a fabulous film. But it's so gross at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but just that encounter with No Face also shows you that there's ways that we can um, move forward beyond the destruction that we've we've done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If Absolutely. a dangerous spirit can purge and fix his life, so can you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Another feature that we see commonly in Miyazaki's films are these wonderful complex antagonists. Does anybody stand mm. out in your mind? Uh. Well, since we were talking about Spirited Away, Yubaba. Yeah. Yubaba is gross but you have no idea if she's like i i can't stand the the sight of you baba i was like oh she's so gross um and and i don't know why she has these three heads that are rolling around in her in her throne room <laughs> yeah those disturbed me too i yeah. i could not figure out the reason for them but yeah. i'm just like yeah y'all are hard to look at right right and see for me it was um, just the squirming of the radish spirit so, oh well anyway Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, nightmares. <laughs> but complex um, antagonist. Yeah, yeah, you Baba, but you have no idea if she's good or evil, what she, you know, what she, her intentions are, if she's going to like you one minute or hate you the next minute, uh, give you something good or take something away from you. And, yeah, you have no idea what's, what's going to happen next with you, Baba. I feel like that's what makes her real in some sense is that, most of the people that you run into, whether in your job or, I don't know, at, at a Thanksgiving table going wrong, that none of these people are completely good or completely bad in mm-hmm. the archetypal structure of them, but they're complex sets of ambitions and powers and promises and codes of honor and ethics. And sure, she's cruel and she's cold. But she's not evil because you. she makes a promise. She will keep it. Mm-hmm, uh, she mm-hmm. won't be wantonly destructive for the purposes of being wantonly destructive. Mm-hmm. But she will take your name away and press you into service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And turn you into pig and, you know, fatten you up and eat you. Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest, though. Walmart does the same thing to its people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I thought Suleiman from Howl's Moving Castle was a, a similar character in that regard, that she's very oh, complex. Yeah. Her motivations are never really clear. I, 
I still don't know exactly what it was that she was after other than getting Hal back under her thumb. But I think that wasn't just a matter of pure power mongering because clearly she has some kind of attachment to him or all of her pages wouldn't look exactly like him. Yeah. The impression that I got, and I've, I've only watched the movie once so far, was that she engineered this war entirely for the purpose of regaining control over Howl. And maybe she was the one who transformed the prince of the other country into something else to start the war. But all of that is, is kind of left unclear. And she doesn't outright attack anybody. She doesn't actually do much of anything that's villain-like. And yet she is clearly the person that Howl's afraid of. She's driving a lot of the story. It's a very interesting and complex character that I still haven't quite wrapped my brain around. And even in the same film, we have the Witch of the Waste, who at first we see as, initially I assessed her as the antagonist, but it's somebody for whom we wind up having a lot of compassion for by the end of the film. I mean, even then, she's not good, Mm -hmm. but she is obviously a hurting person uh, that that is worthy of compassion and aid. I would like to bring up Lady Iboshi from Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. When we are first presented with her, you think, oh, this is an embattled noblewoman who is protecting women who have been through difficult situations in the fort. She is housing and protecting a band of people who no one else would want, lepers, mm-hmm. putting them yep. to work. And while they are creating arms and armaments, new and dangerous guns, you're under the impression, oh, they have these to protect themselves in their fort from outside dangers. But Mm -hmm. that quickly goes sideways, and you find that this woman who you see with a type of quiet nobility has other plans, dark plans for the spirits of the forest, who she does not see as... How do I want to phrase this? Well, she's a kind person towards those that she can aid, but she has calculating ambition Mm -hmm. in terms of what is going to grow her town and grow her ironworks. And if that involves killing a god, then so be it. Once she does that, she'll have more iron to, to mine and strip away. Again, she's not wantonly destructive. She just is a no, destructive yeah. force for ambition. She's a very calculating force. She mm-hmm. weighs and she measures how much force will be needed. Who and what am I up against? How can I achieve my goals? But her goals are somewhat altruistic in the sense that she- she has, she's building herself a little empire, and she has her own people that she's looking out for. So it's it's like she's doing this for her people as well as for her own advancement as a leader of the people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which there's a nobility to that, but also mm-hmm. she's not good either. Right. She's not bad, but she's not – she doesn't fit into any of these classic – Disney categories of good guy, bad guy. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I love about that film. It's a complex character for a complex and beautiful movie that can be visually enjoyed by children, older children because of the older subject matter. Children. Oh, older children. <laughs> but the adults will get so much more out of it than they will with animated movies from other studios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one film that hasn't come up yet and we may as well talk about complex antagonists here. Anybody seen Castle in the Sky? A long time ago, I've yeah. watched that. Same. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So I had to refresh myself on with some YouTube videos. But yeah, that's that is a good one for sure. How about them pirates, right? How about them <laughs> pirates? Them sky pirates. <laughs> so, Not I mean, it's besides Castle in the Sky and Porco Rosso, are there any other movies of Miyazaki's that feature sky pirates? None come to mind, but let's be honest, no, there aren't yeah. enough movies about sky pirates. Yes, we, on that we can all agree. <laughs> and it's funny because when you start off, you think that these are the bad guys because they're raiding a plane trying to take Sheeta, and they come to town after her, I mean, after her crystal, and after the government is in control of, of Sheeta and is in possession of her and the crystal, the pirates wind up joining forces with our, with our protagonist in order to, I mean, things align at that point to get her back and then to go get the crystal. Now, granted, they're still after treasure, but they're also... You see them from a different light midway through the film. They're not single-minded. They're not evil. They mm. show themselves being a little goofy, but they have a sense of honor. They love their mom, and they're perfectly willing to team up with the protagonists to pursue a common goal. Must be a lot of head nodding going on because we're not saying anything else. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> okay, I just I'm afraid of dominating this conversation. No, curse you, so Mike, and all of your complete statements, which encompass everything we feel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, how about a heavy theme? I like attitude towards war. Ooh, all of it. Side note: <laughs> Yeah, I actually have I have not seen Grave of the Fireflies, but I've read enough about it. I don't know if I am ever going to. It's rough. Yeah. It, is, it is rough. Yeah. This is not yeah. a, a movie by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, it's a Studio Ghibli film. And I, I think it can be very well summed up because we did, when we were in Kansas, we, we watched the film and then we said, oh my goodness, this is, this is a remarkable film. It was rough because one of the most affected characters was a young girl that reminded us of our eldest daughter at the time. And mm. we invited a friend, uh, a parishioner over to watch the film. And I think that she summed up the feelings in the room perfectly because after the credits rolled, she just sighed this deep, heavy, long swear word. And we're like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how you feel after the film. So, yeah, let's let's move on to one of the others by Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> have any of you seen, I don't know if it's a Miyazaki one, I know it's a Studio Ghibli one, but have you seen The Wind Rises? Oh, yeah, that's um, Hayao Miyazaki. Okay. That is Miyazaki, yep. Mm-hmm. I bring it up because we joke earlier about Sky Pirates, but Miyazaki did have a love of flight. A love oh, of yeah, planes we're that later. And, and everything that they represent. Okay, I can save it for later. I just I was thinking about it because I remember seeing trailers for The Wind Rises. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. And once again, that had me thinking about Porco Rosso, Kiki's Delivery Service, Valley of the Winds, and others where planes and flight, flight. figure so mm-hmm. prominently in so many of his stories. But um, even in even in all of those films, there's even subtle digs at not even digs, but subtle commentary on war. Um, mm-hmm. Because you you think of the wind rises, this person is designing planes that are going to fight in World War II. But for him, it's always about the plane. Like 
is not terribly excited about about anything that has to do with the war, but it's all about mm-hmm. the planes. And some of these things facilitate his love of the planes, and there's some uneasiness and some anxiety uh, because of it. But And even Kiki's, there is, you may not know this, but it basically takes place in a parallel timeline in Mediterranean Europe in which World War II did not happen. Ah, nice. And the the music and the style of the vehicles tip us off to this is taking place so like the the late 40s early 50s and in the intro sequence while she's flying into the city there is on screen very clearly a Handley Page HP 42 which were all created in the 1930s then all transitioned into military service and all of them shot down and destroyed mm. during the war yet mm. in the 1950s here is one just sailing along because, yeah, World War II, no. In this film, that did not happen. Nice. So if you kind of going back to The Wind Rises, sorry. Um, but, again, I'd recommend that documentary, uh, Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, because it's filmed while he's working on The Wind Rises. So there's a lot of commentary involved with mm-hmm. that movie particular um, and he even kind of gives a little insight into that thought process of here's a character who's building planes for the war and people who are designing, designing planes, designing cars, designing whatever. Um, he kind of laments the, the eventual use of those, those uh, tools, is what he called it, tools to use in war or the industrial you know, civilization. So really highly recommend that um, to our listeners and to you guys, because it's a if you're a Miyazaki fan, that was a really, really good watch um, just to kind of get a little bit of an insight into him and his thought processes and what he's doing, especially when it comes to The Wind Rises. Can that be streamed or do we do we purchase that anywhere? You can. Can we put that in the show notes? You can purchase or rent that um, from Amazon Prime. So you'll have to pay for it. Definitely will. It's worth it. Um, how else do attitudes towards war and violence show up in his films? Well, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, from what I understand, was written kind of in response to the uh, invasion of Iraq. Um, mm. And his attitude toward, Miyazaki's attitude toward what that was doing to people, what that was doing to the nations involved, comes through really bright and clear in it. The sorcerers are all being recruited uh, to fight in this, in this war, and as a consequence of that, they're transforming themselves into these bird creatures. And uh, Calcifer says that when they do this, they can't—they frequently can't change back. They're literally being robbed of their humanity in order to fight mm-hmm. this war, and the war is utterly futile. It's—they're not fighting over anything in particular. They're not grabbing for territory it's completely being fought on a pretext as mentioned earlier the king seems to regard the entire thing as a game he's just having fun even though his people are being killed his cities are being bombed and the war is not accomplishing anything for either side uh and just the the sheer level of violence that is portrayed you're seeing the the city's being bombed. You're seeing the birds fighting each other. 
I was really, really just struck by the amount of rage that Miyazaki must must have been feeling to put this on the screen because it it's not veiled at all. Hmm. It's been a long time since I've seen Howl's Moving Castle. I was trying to get it from my brother, and unfortunately, I just couldn't get it in time to to rewatch it. It's been a couple of years since I've watched it. Um, so I'll, I'll be rewatching it just as a revisiting now that we're kind of all talking about this. I'm going to be all about Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go on a Miyazaki <laughs> film binge. Um, That's never so a bad I'll be thing. Interested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I like I said, I, wa- I watched it a few years ago. So I watched a couple of YouTube videos and I heard that and I wasn't familiar with it when I first watched it. So going into that, having that knowledge, going into watching it again, I'm excited to kind of see that, um, that mm-hmm. different angle, because that was something I was not aware of when I first saw it. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how much it colored my my viewing of the movie to know that going into it, but mm-hmm. I think it certainly did. Mm. It's funny, with as many times as I've watched the film, I didn't realize that it was a commentary on the Iraq War. And, yeah, I'm going to be rewatching the film. and see, I mean, I, I see what you're saying loud and clear, because I remember the film pretty well, but... I was watching it thinking like, wow, he really thinks war is stupid. And now I'm seeing that, no, he thinks this war particularly this and especially war. is stupid. It very much reminded me about, about what a thinly veiled metaphor that Ponyo was for the Falklands War. I mean, when you really look at it, you find out that the little boy is obviously Argentina. <laughs> I actually and, read an article exactly and, and that Pon- and, the, and that Ponyo herself was the Falkland Islands, and there was a constant push and pull battle being fought with the sea for his love of this little well red-haired done, girl. I mean, well, honestly, well done, sir. yes, I mean, really, Miyazaki. I mean, could you be any more apparent? <laughs> oh, oh good job. Um, All right, so uh, can we? Uh, parse out any other uh, metaphors in quotes? (laughs) Oh, totally. If we're going metaphors, then Nausicaa. Uh, Absolutely no question. Because (laughs) though, again, his attitude towards war is apparent all throughout the film. She wants Mm -hmm. these two kingdoms to stop fighting. Uh, But what's really interesting is the way that they speak of the giant warriors. Like the old woman in the village talks about if you use the the giant warrior that you deserve to be overrun um, mm. by the Om. Like, it's, you don't deserve to survive if you are willing to use this creature of abject destruction. This is mm-hmm. an analog for nuclear weapons. Like sure. This, this, oh, yeah. These things destroyed the entire Earth and polluted it into uselessness until mm-hmm. it could be cleansed over hundreds of years by the jungle. His commentary on nuclear weapons are loud and clear if you're looking yeah. for direct analogs. Yeah. And speaking back to, um, you know, the tools becoming weapons of war, a nuclear weapon is <laughs> is meant, like nuclear is just, oh, okay, so the Fukushima disaster that happened uh Actually, again, it was mentioned in the documentary. The nuclear weapons, one could say or argue that nuclear power um, is, a, is a tool for us to gain energy, and, but the destructiveness, like at what cost 
with the nuclear power? At what cost are we using this power? I mean, I don't know if that adds anything to your discussion on Nausicaa, but, um, you know, yes, he, he is absolutely against nuclear power and nuclear weapons. If God wanted us to have a source of clean, renewable energy, he would have put a giant fusion reactor in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's let's get back to this idea of the love of flight cuz wow, he just loves flight. Mhm. Mhm. So, Miyazaki actually was born 1941, I believe it if I remember correctly. And his father worked uh, for, well, he owned, it was called Miyazaki Aeroplane, I think it was, but basically built parts for planes. So he, from the very beginning, from his heritage, his very heritage, has always been connected with flight. Um, and, in fact, the name Studio Ghibli uh, is derived from an Italian plane, the Caproni, yeah. let me make sure I got that right, the Caproni 308. It's actually the word in Italian is pronounced Ghibli, but it said that he mispronounced it Ghibli, and so then it just stuck. So it's, mm. it's kind of cool that he got the name from an airplane. So he has this deep connection with planes and flight. Was Miyazaki himself at any time a pilot? I don't believe so. The reason I ask is because... I've sensed in a couple of his movies, not just a love of flying, but there seemed to be almost a yearning for it, a mm -hmm. yearning to free oneself of the ground and to soar in the sky. Mm. It's the best way I could put how I felt in Porco Rosso, in Kiki's Delivery Service, and in Castle in the Sky. Yeah, I, would, I have not seen any of his movies in the theater, and I think I need to correct that. <laughs> Oh, man. So here's a question for you. Since we're talking about flight, if you had to choose one movie of his that features flight and you could see it in the on the big screen, which one would you recommend? Oh, I totally saw Kiki's on the big screen. And yeah, yes. OK, um, it was it was a wonderful big screen adventure. I'm sure Mononoke or Spirited Away would be more mm -hmm. impressive because of the level of detail. But just, mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you took it down to flight, actually, I've seen a lot of his films in the theater. We saw the uh, the Wind Rises, Kiki's, um, Ponyo. But uh, if you're if you're talking about flight, really, yes, um, either the Wind Rises or Kiki's is is a great large screen experience. As much okay. as I, as much as I've talked about Porco Rosso, <laughs> I'm going to concur with Mike about Kiki's delivery service. Then the first uh, Miyazaki film that I will see in the theater will be Kiki's Delivery Service. And I'll be sure to, and, like, you know, talk about that and blog it and everything and <laughs> make a big deal about it. <laughs> and one of the things about flight in this film is that it's all organic. I mean, it's her magic, yes, but you're not relying on machinery to do this. If you watch mm. the way that she leans with her body and that she... You know, if she's under encumbrance, she'll kind of kick off of a, of a building, almost like you've got a raft and you're kicking off the side of the pool to give you your trajectory. And hmm. she's, you know, if, if you're, if she's trying to go faster, she gets down on the, on the broomstick. Like I would get down on 
on a bicycle or she really leans into it like she's you know she's on something and it it's well, there's like that, some physics like some physics involved with how she moves and how it maneuvers yeah he makes it even though it's magic it's completely fictional sure he borrows enough real world physics to make it feel like this is real world flight like i could just get a broom and i could just start flying like kiki (laughs) you see it and you think if this could work obviously it doesn't in the real world but if it could work that's Uh how it would look i have a uh, recurring dream about flying and uh i'm always just Mm. slightly out of control and the way Kiki flies is exactly like that dream where I, I'm about to crash wow. into a building, so I kick out the feet and kick off of it. Oh, here comes a tree, crash into the tree, and I'm going spinning off. I, imagine, I love those dreams. I imagine that how Kiki flies a broom is how some of us looked the first few times we got on a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent. And still, sometimes the way that we are on a bicycle, like, once, you know, once the bike lanes have... Have enough crap that has just been either construction or oh man, once the snowdrift start encroaching, and it's like Ugh, trying to squeeze between the car and uh, it's going to kick off the snowdrift and uh, off we go. <laughs> I mean, and also Nausicaa. Nausicaa has a wonderful, a wonderful relationship with flying, um, and I know that that was borrowed from the manga, but it's no stretch of the imagination as to why why the source material seemed to resonate so strongly with Miyazaki because her flight is all over this film. Mm, yeah. And I love her, her machine. I love how she can use it in different ways, like depending on what she needs to do to get where she needs to go. <laughs> but she, she has different positions and different things that she can do with her little flying machine that uh, improve its maneuverability and its speed. You know, it's just a really cool little detail. She's not just standing on it. So I really yeah. liked how that kind of developed into its own thing. Yeah. What's also funny in terms of detail and flight and making sure that even the fabrics are moving right. There mm-hmm. was, in preparation for Kiki's, Miyazaki studied how does fabric move. Like he would sit there and watch people and sketch their clothing to make sure that when mm. when people are flying – this this moves right with the wind or the dress flutters just right. And that's just an amazing sense of realism that he puts into the animation for yep. for these films. Okay. Um let's talk about loss and recovery. Oh yeah. So rewatching I'm gonna bring this up first, uh Totoro. It's that is such a great movie um for any age and it helps to kind of introduce this idea of of the loss and recovery because you, you there's this threat of losing their mother even though she's still mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. they don't have you know they they don't have her at home and there's this really heartbreaking scene where um oh I can't remember the older girl's name she starts breaking down and crying because again there's this there's this threat that mom won't come home and that she'll die. Yeah. But it doesn't, thankfully it doesn't happen, you know, in the movie. And even uh, little May gets, gets lost when she's, Oh, there's her name. Yashiko. There we go. Um, and even little May gets lost going to find her mother. Uh, but they end up finding her and 
it's just an awesome, sweet little movie. I just absolutely love it. And you're, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, even though I know that they're going to find May. You know, mom's not going to die. <laughs> but the way he imbues the emotion and the the danger within the characters, it's just it's just fantastic. It's just fantastic. And the and way without... he uses that to give us that uh, child's experience of that fear that the yeah. children don't know what's what's happening. And you always get this sense that, you know, the doctors and dad are just giving them uh, a little bit of a lie and that you never quite believe that that mom's actually going to be OK. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great lesson for kids and also a reminder for adults that sometimes, like in this movie, like in life, there's no super happy, perfect ending. Mm-hmm. There was an ending to this, but it was a realistic ending. It was a ending which is more like what we would see in real life. It wasn't the perfect ending where the mother is miraculously healed and gets to come home and they're a perfect family again. It's mm-hmm. not a, a tragic ending either. It's mm-hmm. simply a ending. Well, the just the very idea of Totoro, it's interesting because the children see Totoro, but the father doesn't, even though he's like, the girls go out and have this whole little ritual of growing the acorns and go on this huge flight <laughs> flying adventure. Um, you know, they're like, Oh, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. So there's also this idea of loss in the sense that the father lost the ability to mm. see, see the magic of Totoro um, and the soot sprites and everything. Um, but he believes in it in the sense that he talks to the girls like it's a like it's a serious thing that they experienced and you know so it's something that he he encourages um but he never he never gets to see Totoro yeah we have some interesting notes on Kiki and and her magic does anybody want to flesh that out i'll let somebody take that away same here cuz it's <laughs> okay. been a long time since i've seen kiki's yeah. <laughs> uh, did you make the note, Brian, or do you want me I to... did. I was just trying to figure out exactly what direction to come at it from. The story in this film is a little bit more familiar today than it probably was when uh, when uh, Kiki's Delivery Service debuted, because we've got a pattern in superhero movies lately, where mm. you know the second or third movie, the hero loses his powers for a little while and has to discover. You know, what is it that makes me a hero? It's not because I can stick to walls or it's not because I've got an iron suit. It's because of my heart or whatever. And so that that story is a little bit familiar and maybe even a little hackneyed at this point. But uh, in this one, and I was never really clear what exactly it was that caused Kiki to lose her her confidence in her magic. What what caused it to fade? Maybe it's something that just happens to witches and it's part of their their testing but it was a an interesting way to amp up to create a uh, a climax in the film to give us some some tension um, as she has to make a rescue when she's not entirely certain if she can still even fly properly. And I wonder, uh, did Gigi ever regain his voice? He stopped talking, and I don't remember if he ever talked again after she started flying again. This is a wonderful question and it depends on if you're watching the sub or the dub 
because oh. in yeah in the in the end in the dub you hear Phil Hartman say meow which suggests that it's Phil Hartman's voice so yeah that's the voice but Gigi never said meow in the subtitled version of the film it is a cat's meow and this is actually one of the dividing points between uh, Hayao Miyazaki and the author of the original series from Kiki's Delivery Service. I've, I've read the source hmm. material, at least the first book, um, and there were some disagreements. I think that Miyazaki made the right choices for a movie presentation because the book was a sweet book, which would have made a terrible movie. Uh, and the <laughs> author was upset that Gigi does not speak anymore because Gigi always spoke in the books. And for Hayao Miyazaki, Gigi was a representation of needing a guide. Ah. Um, so Kiki needed somebody to, to help her and be her coach and be her, um, be her number one. And Gigi was it. But once she had this, this epiphany and this maturing experience, she no longer needed uh, Gigi to speak because she, she had come into her own. Mm -hmm. uh, Gigi is still her companion, but she has matured and she doesn't need that anymore. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. So even in that growth, there is loss. Yeah. Which I think is even representative in what Bex was referring to, that uh, as the adult becomes the adult, he no longer sees Totoro or the Soot Sprite, and there is loss in that growth. Yeah, and the... Uh... We don't always recover the things that are lost, even through these films. The Witch of the Waste never gets Hal's heart back, although <laughs> it's questionable whether he actually ever loved her since he didn't have a heart. Um, right. And she doesn't get her own her, her powers back or her youth. Suleiman doesn't get her apprentice back. And yet there are characters in there that do regain what they've lost although sophie retains the the mark of her experience and the gray hair but it is those losses that drive many mm. of these stories yeah all right uh since we are running out of time do we want to close this discussion of miyazaki out with uh with a discussion of strong female leads which in my notes it says where do I even begin? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we'd better because there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in Porco Rosso, where this is about the pilot. No, he has an engineer, and that engineer is this young, upstart young lady. And she is the one driving the this force of this new plane. Like, it is her first design, and she comes out with a design that is far better than anything that Porco has ever has ever run. But she has to accompany him on the first flight. They sacrifice one of the guns for her to be on board to make tweaks on the first flight. Hmm. So even in the support role, these are strong characters. Well, and take for uh, take uh, Princess Mononoke, for example. So the film is named after Princess Mononoke, but you're following Ashitaka, kind of his adventure into stepping into this conflict and Sen plays a big role as well as Lady Eboshi. I mean, they're very strong, almost uh, elevated to the same level as Ashitaka. Like all the, all three of them kind of have to come together in, in representing the, the story and the plot and the driving force of it. Um, so it, even, even though you start with Ashitaka, 
you have these two female characters that are in conflict with each other and you almost are like directed towards their story instead of Ashitaka's story. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's also take a look at Chihiro from Spirited Away. Does she start the movie <laughs> as a strong female character? Absolutely no. not. Well, <laughs> now that depends on how you define strong. He wasn't personally strong, but the character had a lot of strength to True. it and that you knew exactly who she was. But where I'm going is that she grew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She grew as Absolutely. a character. She found her own strengths. And it wasn't just a sudden jarring thing like, oh, I'm weak and I'm bratty, but now I'm strong and I'm forceful. It grew very organically through her trials and tribulations at the bathhouse. And so that when she did finally display her own strength and courage, it was believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I liked the way in Howl's that Sophie's strength was actually unveiled by making her weak. Her, yeah. her youth was taken away, and that suddenly freed her to speak her mind, to do the things that needed to happen uh, in order to save Howl, to save uh, Calcifer. Things that she, when she was a young woman, she couldn't have done. She was always reacting. She was always uh, just responding to what happened to her. But when her youth was taken away, she's an old woman suddenly she's the one who can act and make things happen. And I thought that was pretty bold on the part of, of Miyazaki to, you know, he's got this very appealing character design in Sophie, and she spends almost the entire movie being, you know, not that, being this old woman, uh, which is kind of an unusual choice, uh, even in animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah. What about The Wind Rises? Since that's focused on a male lead, did anybody want to comment anything on that? Or not? <laughs> well, I haven't not. seen like, it. So. Neither have I. Scratch that. <laughs> Delete that part. <laughs> or just insert some crickets for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just as a counterpoint, you know? Because <laughs> right. we have I mean, a list of all these, you know, wonderful female leads. And then we have The Wind Rises, which is his most recent work. I mean, one could argue that's his most recent work. Um, but we have a, a male lead in this one. So I was just kind of trying to insert a counterpoint to that. <laughs> right. I mean, he is not, he's obviously not exclusively about female leads because we do have films like Castle in the Sky, where really the, the female protagonist is just kind of added to. Uh-huh. Certainly she's a central character, but she is not what we would call the prototypical strong female lead. She has power, uh-huh. but she is really very much a subject to her environment. We also have, oh yeah, there you go, Castle in the Sky and the Wind Rises. So, you know. There you go. Um, <laughs> no, you can go all the way back to Cagliostro, <laughs> where the, the female character yeah. was uh, there you go. There you oh, go. That the princess in the tower. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. that was very much a damsel in distress. Yeah, I never counted that film. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I even think that we have different representations of strength in Nausicaa, because you have one woman who is clearly a brutal military leader, not evil, but she has her own sense of strength. But it's it's more callous and vicious, where you have a a compassionate strength that 
that urges towards peace in Nausicaa. So even then, mm-hmm. when you say you know different sides, yeah, there are even different sides and representations of strength. Very good. I think that's a good place to wrap up our Miyazaki discussion. Hooray! Any, any other final thoughts, gentlemen or lady? Um, I don't know if this w- if you want to include this, but there is a YouTube video out there that uh, focuses on. It's called Why Miyazaki's Films Sound Pretty by a YouTuber called Sideways. And it was really fascinating if you're into music theory, which I'm not, but I still found it fascinating. <laughs> oh, we do love us some music theory here at Geek at Arms. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would recommend that YouTube video uh, because I, it was really interesting. And I love Joe Hisaishi's, uh, especially the Spirited Away soundtrack. Um mm. So, and I, I just th- I just thought that would be a nice kind of insert into this whole discussion because you can't have a good movie without some good music. That's so right. that's a whole another area of discussion we just didn't even have time to get to. I know. Right? Was Miyazaki's music? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about the movies, especially the movies that we discuss in our film club. How a good score can really make or break a movie. Mm-hmm. And has there been a Miyazaki movie that you've where you haven't thought this music is good? I'll say I don't oh, remember the music you. from Whisper of the Heart except for the uh, violin scenes. I had to say that because I haven't said Whisper of the Heart during the entire film. <laughs> the entire podcast. Well, all right. Then that will definitely wrap up our Miyazaki Studio Ghibli discussion. And that will lead us to. This episode's Zombie Apocalypse Plan of the Week. Oh, boy. Who has got our plan for surviving the undead today? (laughs) All right, I got something for you. So I assume most of us are employed outside of our home. Uh, So I work at a supplement store selling protein, vitamins, things like that. And one time me and my coworker came up with the if the crap hit the fan, what five things could we grab out of our place of employment? So for me, it would be the supplement store. What could we grab that would help us kind of survive the zombie apocalypse? So I came up with five items that are laying around in my store that's readily available. So what I have here is first I have a duffel bag because I want to be able to carry these things, right? Mm-hmm. Next would be some electrolyte powder because if I'm on the run, I need something to kind of keep my muscles going. So electrolyte powder. Uh, Another one would be a box of protein bars. Initially we said a tub of protein, but you would have to like mix that, right? Yeah. Protein Mm. bars are (laughs) definitely more portable and they're tradable. So if you need them to barter, you got your protein bars. Next would be colloidal silver. Now, colloidal silver has been touted among supplement gurus as being antibacterial. So if your zombie apocalypse happened because of of a bacteria, you have something to protect you against the infection. And last but not least, any retail store is equipped with a mop. So take that mop head off, and you've got yourself a nice, sturdy beat stick to send off (laughs) the invading horde. 
Okay, this is very well thought out. Well done. Well done see, indeed. See, if I was at the if I was at the supplement store, I would have just stolen all of the all of the muscle building bulk powder because yeah. I, I mean it's a strategic choice because I don't want the zombies getting a hold of that and bulking up before they come knocking yeah, at my door. That is true. That is true. Yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I, I think I would take all of the ginkgo biloba because okay. I don't know what it does, but neither does anyone else, and I can oh. convince them that because they don't know what it is. They need it, and it's going to be essential to their survival, and that it might even stave off the zombie virus, and I'll trade it for everything else I might need. Okay, so ginkgo biloba is actually good for your brain. So if we're talking well, about brain-eating zombies... <laughs> Yes, exactly. See, Dude, double, you're just... double win because now the zombies will be attracted to all the people I traded to. And... There you go. <laughs> It's See. zombie seasoning. What are you people doing? <laughs> excellent, excellent. What else? Anything See, else? I told you this would be a hit. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just trying to think of the things in a VFX studio that I'd want to take with me to defend myself. And it's like, well, no, all the weapons are made out of, like, foam. I've got a lot Ooh. of toys. Um, so, you could make, so you could make some sort of distraction then. Right. Completely distraction. No. Uh, raid the fridge. That's the best I got. Dude, this is easy. You just edit out the zombies in post. I mean, come on. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Well, but in order to do that, we've got to have the green paint. We paint them all green, and then they'll just vanish. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, I like this plan. I do, too. I work for a radio network, which means there's not really a lot around here which is going to be practical for fighting the zombies. Practically, I would serve as a communications hub, getting the word out to people about where to go to survive, where safe houses are, uh, where the zombies are massing, and things like that. In reality, I would be hiding under the table with the microphone, pleading over several airwaves, saying, please, someone, come find me. Come find me. Save me. For me, I mean, if we're talking about not the church, but my my nine-to-five, it's easy because it's not so much what I take from the place of employment. I work at a, at a school of mental health, so we see clients for the doctoral students that are in training, and all I'd have to do is just grab one of the analysts and say, oh, uh, your new intake is here. And as they guide them down <laughs> into the room, I just run. I just book it. Note oh, to great. self, don't be caught in a zombie apocalypse or a bear trail with Mike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Bex, I want to thank you for hanging out with us this episode. Oh, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. This has been a blast, and this will not be the last time we invite you on, definitely. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm going to have to reciprocate some way, somehow, sometime soon. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we want to encourage you all to check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And, Mike, what's our Twitter? We are armsgeek on Twitter. And, uh, Bex, once again, where can people find you online? Oh, they can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Redeemed Otaku. You're going to find us because there's nobody else with that name. So you're going to find us. <laughs> and so finally, from all of us at Geek at Arms and Redeemed Otaku, be safe, be blessed and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. 
For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.